you, the holy God of the universe, whom we have offended but have been reconciled with through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would be crushed by the weight of your glory, that we would be crushed by the free grace that you give us so that we put all pride behind us, so that we are done away with boasting in ourselves. And in its place, we in turn boast in you, O Lord, our rock and our salvation. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, after a short break from our study of the book of Romans, we are picking up in chapter 4. And if you weren't here last week, I highly recommend and encourage you to pick up, I actually requested it specifically of the sound guys this morning, that they make a few extra copies of Chad's sermon last week. He preached uh, through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So please pick that up. Very encouraging, extremely challenging as well. And Chad said, by way of introduction in that sermon, that he would love to preach an entire sermon series on pride. Because we as human beings, as creatures made by God, and because of the fall, are extremely prideful. Excessively prideful. And even now, as Christians, who are new creations, that still clings to us in the flesh. We are still excessively prideful. And as I've prepared over the last couple weeks to preach to you all from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and I've just let the gospel flow through my mind and over my heart, I've been so refreshed. But at the same time, I've been saddened and I've been discouraged by the disconnect between the gospel that I've been studying, the gospel that I profess, the gospel that I love, and then how I live out my life. In my everyday today living, there's this disconnect. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you sat me down in one of these chairs and said, Jason, articulate the gospel for me. What is the gospel message? I could point to scriptures and I could do it in such a way that it's in line with the creeds and confessions that we hold to. But then when I go out into the world and I'm living my life, I pervert the gospel. The main way I do this is I know that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It excludes all works. But in my day-to-day life, I pervert the gospel by trying to slip works right back in there. Always trying to slip works back into the gospel, into, the, into justification. Now, you may be asking yourself, why do you do that? We all do that, by the way. Why do we do that? Because if works are excluded in the gospel... There's no place for boasting. But if I can somehow slip my works back in there, into the gospel, into justification, then I'll have something to boast about. And guess what? In the flesh, in my pride, I love to have something to boast about. So I, in my day-to-day life, slip works back into the gospel. I do it all the time. 
because I want to have something to boast about. Now, typically, when you think of someone who's prideful or who's boastful, when you close your eyes and you put in your mind's eye, okay, well, what does that person look like? Usually, we think of the person who's strong and confident. They're always talking. They're expressing their opinion to everybody. They're usually leaders and teachers. And we look at those people and we go, man, they sure are prideful, aren't they? They sure, they sure boast a lot. They think they're sharing their opinion all the time. They think that they've got the truth. That person's really prideful. And so that's the person we normally think of as prideful and boastful. But there's another type of person, and I myself am more this way, who's quiet, more reserved, more shy, doesn't necessarily share his opinion as much, would rather hear somebody else talk than himself. But in my heart and in my mind, I love to entertain prideful thoughts, boastful thoughts all the time, comparing myself to other people, looking down on them in the ways that they don't measure up in the ways that I think I measure up. And so both types of people, those who express their pride in their boasting with their mouth and those who express it in their hearts and in their minds are equally boastful. And I would venture to say that all of us in this room fit into one of those two categories. We're either more outgoing or more quiet and reserved. But the point is, all of us struggle with this. All of us are prideful and boastful people. And you know what happens when we sneak our works into the gospel, into justification? This is what norm, how, normally how it works. We take a good thing, a good gift from God. We slip it into the, the gospel as a work, and then the thing that we've slipped in there, which is a good thing most of the time, we then turn it into our justification. So if you're spending all your time focusing on your family and you slip that into the gospel and thinking that that's your justification, you're going to pursue that as your justification. Or if it's your job and your career, you're going to pursue that as your justification. Or your intellect. It could even be your physique, your possessions, your feelings. I feel really bad when I sin and I love to delight in the Lord. Or your health, your discipline, your biblical knowledge, your theology, your doctrine, your prayer life, your relationships, your church involvement. Let me just confess to you. I've had to fight and guard my heart to make sure that I haven't turned preaching this morning into my justification. As if my acceptance before God somehow rose or fell on how well I do this morning. But I, I do it. I struggle with it. Why? I want to have something to boast about. We're all this way. We're self-centered, self-exalting, self-congratulating, self-esteeming people always trying to prop ourselves up. And you know what the most devastating thing about this is? Other than the fact that it's a false justification and it doesn't bring glory to God, the most devastating thing about it, the greatest tragedy, is that we miss out in boasting in the thing that we were created to boast in. The one thing that is worth boasting in. The gospel of Jesus Christ that's revealed in the word of God. We miss out in boasting in the glory of God as it's revealed in the gospel, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfections, his love, his grace, his mercy. We miss out in boasting in all that he's done for us. And we in turn exchange it for the empty, hollow pleasures of boasting in self. And Paul, 
as he systematically goes and presents the gospel through the book of Romans, he takes away every ground possible that we could set up for reason for boasting. Any possible way for us to boast in ourselves or in what we do, he strips it away from us. And we're going to see that very clearly in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. But before we do that, before we jump into Romans chapter 4, I want to do a brief overview of where we've been so far in the book of Romans. Because Paul is laying out his grand presentation of the gospel. This is the clearest, best um, presentation of the gospel in all the Bible. Many of the reformers say that if you understand the book of Romans, it's the key that unlocks all of the scriptures to you. And we've been spending, as I'm sure you know if you've been attending with us, that we've spent a year on just the first three chapters. So we've been taking it very slow. And so it's easy to miss the big picture amidst all the details that we've been looking at. So really quickly, I want to give you a brief overview of where we've been so far in the book of Romans. Really broad strokes, really broad overview. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, Paul introduces himself and lets his hearers, the church in Rome, know that he longs to see them and preach the gospel to them. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul presents his thesis, which is the gospel. The righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. And then he goes on through the rest of chapter 1, all the way through the first half of chapter 3, explaining why we need this righteousness from God. He clearly lays out the fact that both Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious, moral and immoral, those with the law and those without the law, are all equally and deservedly under the wrath of God. Paul says, to sum it up, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. God will render each one according to his works. All are under sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. No one does good. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every mouth is stopped and the whole world held accountable before God. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul, for two solid chapters... Bam, 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 hitting us with the bad news. Because you have to know how bad the bad news is before you can know how good the good news is, don't you? And that's exactly what he does. And week after week, I don't know if you did, I know I did, I felt it. It's like, man, I can't wait till we get to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And then we came upon it. And those glorious words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And we spent weeks just letting the truth of the gospel in verses 21 through 31 just pour over us. And if you missed any of those Sundays, again, we've made copies of the CDs. Feel free to pick them up. Just basking in the free grace of God as it is revealed in his justifying men by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now we find ourselves here in chapter 4. And what we find Paul doing in chapter 4 is he is proving from the Old Testament that this doctrine that he's teaching, this gospel that he's presenting to the church in Rome, is not new news. This isn't anything new. 
And Paul's preempting an objection from the church in Rome because remember, the Jewish, the Christians in Rome are made up of both Jews and Gentiles. There's Jewish Christians and there's Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians are going to bring a certain amount of baggage in understanding how men were justified or saved in the Old Testament. And Paul knows that. And so he wants to preempt it and remove the roadblocks, remove the mental barriers that are in the way of them accepting and fully embracing the gospel. And the reason there were mental barriers for these um, Jews isn't because they didn't have access to the Old Testament. It's because their understanding of the Old Testament was tainted by um, Jewish rabbinical literature from the first and second centuries, primarily the Jewish Apocrypha. And so these rabbis would interpret things that were happening in the Old Testament in an incorrect way. And that was the Jewish understanding at that time when Paul was writing to these Christians, these Jewish Christians in Rome. And so he needed to remove those mental roadblocks. He needed to remove them for them. He wanted to show them clearly that the gospel of the Old Testament is the same gospel of the New Testament. And Paul's been dropping hints at this all along the way. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Set beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is saying that his gospel, the gospel he's presenting to them, was proclaimed in the Old Testament through the prophets. This isn't new news, guys. It's just a clearer revelation. That's what he's telling the Jews. In Romans 3, 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Again, he's saying to the Jewish Christians, This gospel I'm presenting to you is not new. It's, it's always been there. It's there in the Old Testament. So he's been dropping hints about this, but now he's going to give it its fullest treatment. He's going to pull out all the guns and blast away their false understandings. And this morning, I want us to see how Paul answers the question, why is all boasting before God and man excluded? I want to see specifically how Paul answers the question in Romans 4, 1 through 8, why all boasting before God and man is excluded. And I want to answer that question with four points that will make up the outline. Point number one, all boasting is excluded because we are not justified by works. All boasting is excluded because we are not justified by works. Look at verses one through two with me. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. Now, if you had to think of one of the greatest Old Testament characters, one of the greatest Old Testament figures in the Jewish mindset, who would it be? Now, if you asked me, I'd say it'd be a toss-up in my mind between Abraham and Moses. Moses, because he led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, and he was going to take them to the promised land. And he received the law of God and gave it to the Israelites. So that's why I'd say Moses. But if you asked a typical Jew, he would say, hands down, Abraham. Abraham is the greatest Old Testament figure and character, the one that we cherish the most. Now, why is that? Abraham is so important to the Jews because he literally was the first Jew. 
He's the father of Israel. What does Paul say? Paul calls Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. According to the race, the ethnicity of the Jewish people, Abraham is their father. Because he was a pagan. He was a Gentile living in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping pagan idols, and God called him out of that. And said, I'm going to take you, I'm going to make you your own people and take you to a land that you do not know. And so Abraham was the first Jew. And the, the Jews absolutely loved Abraham. They looked up to him. Another reason is because he was a man of many good works. Abraham, from a human perspective, was a righteous man. Just to mention a few of his great works, he was extremely obedient to God. He left his own country because God called him and he didn't even know where God was leading him. He was willing after praying for years and years that God would give him a son. And then God finally gives him Isaac. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. He was just about to cut his throat when the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Okay, I've tested you. I know that you love me. But he was willing to sacrifice even his own son to, be, to obey the Lord. He was also a great warrior. You'll remember that when Lot was captured by the wicked eastern kings, Abraham came to his rescue and crushed them. So Abraham was a great warrior. They looked up to him for that reason. And he was also a humble man. When he and Lot were traveling together and their herds got so big that there wasn't enough pasture for both of the herds to feed off of, they split off. Abraham said, let you go one way, I'll go the other way. But Lot, you choose the lot of land that you want, the plot of land that you want. So obviously Lot chose the best one. And Abraham led him because he trusted God and he was humble before men. So there's many more examples we could list, but the point is clear that Abraham truly was an amazing man of God. But the Jews took it a step further than that. The rabbis, the first and second century rabbinical literature, primarily the Jewish Apocrypha, stated that Abraham was perfect. They kicked it up a notch and said, Abraham was not only a good man, he's not only our father, according to the flesh, he was perfect. Just to give you a few examples, one Jewish rabbi said, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. He's saying before the people of Israel received the law of God through Moses, Abraham had fulfilled it in its entirety. He was perfect. Another example from Jubilee 2310, which is from the Jewish Apocrypha, it says that Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. So the Jews, they thought of Abraham is perfect. And Paul knew that the Jews thought this way of Abraham. So in verse 2, if you look at it with me, he presents a very simple, clear argument that the Jews would quickly concede to. He says, listen, if what your rabbis say is true, if it's true that Abraham was justified by his works, then he has reason to boast before God. Now, every God-fearing, pious Jew as soon as those words would have left Paul's pen and they read it, they'd say, oh, no, oh, no, no flesh, no man has any right to boast before God. That, that can't be. So Paul says, exactly. We agree on this. He's appealing to their logic. He's appealing to what they already know. He says, therefore, if Abraham has no reason to boast before God, he was not justified by his works. He couldn't have been justified by his works. If he did, if he was, then he'd be able to boast before God. 
So Paul lays out a very clear argument to them that they would quickly concede to. Right from the start, he attacks their misunderstanding. He wants to get rid of that for them so that they can completely embrace and accept the gospel and know that it's not a new doctrine. And of course, we see Paul is removing any grounds for boasting. Man is not justified by works. No flesh can be justified by obeying the law of God because we fall short of it. Abraham included. But Paul wants to make this point even clearer. So he goes on to say, and this is the second point, all boasting is excluded because we are justified by faith. All boasting is excluded because we are justified by faith. Look at verse 3 with me. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul appeals to the highest authority that he knows. He appeals to the highest authority that the Jews know of, the scriptures. And he takes them right to Genesis 15.6. That's a direct quote from Genesis 15.6. And the reason Paul quotes it and the reason that he wants to explain to them what this passage means is because much of the Jewish misunderstanding of how men were saved in the Old Testament is due to their misunderstanding of this very passage. The rabbis would use this to show that Abraham was justified by works, that he was faithful, and so God counted him righteous. That's the way they understood it. So Paul says, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Because if that's the way it is, then we have reason to boast. And the gospel's not my, by grace. It's not a gift. And he explains what the gospel would be in verse 4. Um, what, the, what the gospel would be in verse 4 if he were justified by works. Look at verse 4 with me. This is a commentary, verses 4 and 5, basically, on Genesis fifteen six. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So Paul lays before them a really simple everyday example, a business example, really. He says, okay, let's say that this worker goes to work for his boss and he shows up and he works all day. And at the end of the day, as the worker's about to check out, to clock out, his boss comes up to him with his check in his hand, the worker's paycheck. He's got a big smile on his face, looks real pleased with himself. And he says, I have some grace for you. I have a gift for you. And he hands it to the worker. Now, the worker, because of the words that the boss is using, is thinking, wow, he's paying me more than he usually does. Great. But he looks at the paycheck and he sees that it's made out for what he's always paid. Now, what's the worker going to say to the boss? This isn't grace. This isn't a gift. I earned this. You owed it to me. It was my due. By working all day, I placed you in my debt. And you had to pay me. You had to give me my paycheck. That's what was due me. Paul is saying, that is not the way that Abraham was justified before God. Because then he'd have reason to boast. It would be by works. It would be a wage. Imagine putting God in your debt so that he had to justify and save you. Unthinkable. And the Jews would concede to that. They'd say, no, you're right. No man can say that he's placed God in his debt so that God had to pay him something. So Paul shows very clearly, no place to boast. It's not based on works. It's not a wage. It's not a due. So how was Abraham justified? Paul explains that in verse 5. 
And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Paul sets before us another example. He says, let's say that same worker shows up to work. And just as he's about to start working, his boss comes up to him and says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to be working today. Go inside the office. I want you to just go in there and do whatever you want today. I'm going to work in your place. Even if you want to leave work, that's fine too. But then at the end of the day, come back right at five and I'm going to pay you as if you had worked this entire day, even though I'm going to work for you in your place. So let's say the day goes by, the worker leaves, he goes and does what he wants to do, comes back at five, the boss walks up with a paycheck, says, here's a gift, I'm being gracious to you. And he gives it to him and he takes it. He can say, thank you for this gift. Thank you for your grace. Because he didn't work for it. He just trusted the promise that his boss gave him, I'm going to pay you. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing you can do. Just go, do your thing, and I'm going to pay you. Paul says that's the way that Abraham was justified before God. He didn't work as opposed to the one who does work and thinks that he's getting a wage. He didn't work at all. He simply trusted the promise of God. And then he was given all the promises of God, all the blessings of righteousness and salvation and justification. It's not given to those who work, but to those who work not and trust instead. So that's the way that Abraham was justified. Now, at the very end of verse 5, you'll see that Paul uses the phrase, Abraham's faith or his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand what that phrase means. Faith counted as righteousness. What does that mean? Because I think as evangelicals, here's our typical understanding of faith counted as righteousness. God knew that we couldn't fulfill all the perfect righteous requirements of his law. In, in, in common language, none of us live a perfect life, right? So what God does then is he comes along and he says, well, I'll lower my standards. I, you don't have to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. Just have faith. You can do that. So just have faith, and then I'll count that as righteousness. I'll count that as if you had fulfilled the entire law. Now, does anybody see any problems with that? What does that turn faith into? Just, just to note two problems with it. Faith, that turns faith into a work. And Paul has already clearly laid out that it cannot be that we're justified by works. So therefore, faith clearly cannot be a work. But that's what often we turn our understanding of faith into. God has lowered the bar. He's made it easier for us. In the Old Testament, they had to obey the whole law and they couldn't do that. So they had animal sacrifice. In the New Covenant, it's just faith. So God's lowers the standards. That is not what it means at all. And that leads us to the second problem with this way of thinking about faith counted as righteousness. The second, the second problem is that that would mean that God is unjust. He's less than perfect. He's not holy. He's not righteous because that would be him lowering his standards. God can't do that. That would be unjust of him just as it would be unjust for a judge to let a criminal go by who he knew was guilty of sins, of crimes. It would be just as unjust for that judge as it would be for God to lower his righteous standards and say, hey, don't worry about it. I'll ju just have faith. 
So what does this phrase mean? Um, first of all, what does faith mean? What is faith? Now, for a more comprehensive treatment of this, Chad has done that in past sermons, so I'm not going to rehash all that out. You can pick up a copy of the sermon in the back. But just for a really brief overview, faith is the instrumental means, the instrumental means by which we receive the righteousness of Christ and the complete pardon of our sins. It is a channel by which we are connected to Christ. It links us to Christ so that we are united to him and all that is his becomes ours. Faith is not a work. It contributes absolutely nothing. It is passive. It is receptive. So that's what faith is. What about righteousness? We've already talked about what counted means, imputed or reckoned. It's this financial term for having money moved from somebody else's account to yours. So what does righteousness mean? Or rather, whose righteousness is counted to us? Whose righteousness was counted to Abraham? It obviously can't be our righteousness that is imputed to us. Because the only righteousness that can commend us before God is perfect righteousness. So it has to be somebody else's righteousness. It has to be outside of us. And it's Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us, that is counted to us through faith. Philippians 3, 8 through 9 makes this abundantly clear. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 makes it abundantly clear. Isaiah 53, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Romans 5, and so on and so forth. Now, the Jews very well may have conceded to this and say, okay, we can see how it's Christ's righteousness is reckoned to us, is counted to us now in the new covenant. But was Christ's righteousness counted to Abraham in the old covenant? Is that the way it works, Paul? And Paul says, yes, it's Christ's righteousness that was imputed to Abraham because Abraham believed in Christ. Abraham believed the promise that God would give him a seed. God gave him three promises, but they all hinged on one, uh, one thing, a seed, an heir given to him that would be a blessing to all the nations. And Galatians three fifteen through 18 makes it abundantly clear that that seed was not primarily Isaac. It was primarily Christ. Christ is the promised seed to Abraham. And so Abraham was saved by Christ's righteousness because he believed in Christ. He believed in the coming Messiah. If you don't believe me, Christ himself said this of Abraham in John 8:56. Christ says, "Abraham saw my day. He saw the day of Christ and rejoiced. He saw it and was glad." So Paul is telling his hearers, both the Gentile Christians there and more specifically, the Jewish Christians there, this is always the way that God has justified his people. He's justified them that way in the Old Testament, and that's now the way he justifies them in the New Testament. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And therefore, all boasting is excluded. So now Abraham becomes the father not only of the Jews, those who are ethnically um, from Abraham in the flesh, but Abraham is the father of all those who believe, all those who have faith. And the example of Abraham makes all of that abundantly clear. Which takes us to Paul's third point. All boasting is excluded because God justifies the ungodly. All boasting is excluded 
because God justifies the ungodly. Look at verse 5 with me. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now try to put yourself in the place of the Jewish Christians to whom Paul is writing. He is teaching them all these things that are flipping their world, their entire understanding of their identity, their understanding of salvation on its head. He's already said that one is not justified by works, which is how they thought you were justified, in particular Abraham. Then he says Abraham received Christ's righteousness by faith when they thought it was Abraham's own righteousness that was um, counted to him. And now he says that Abraham was ungodly. This would have been absolutely shocking to the Jews. Absolutely shocking to them. And this is not only shocking to them, this truth is shocking to all other religious um, systems in the world. Because every other religious system in the world tells you how you can become righteous so that you can be accepted by God. That's what they teach you. Christianity And none of those religious systems tell you that God accepts the ungodly. They may lower the standards as to what the ungodly are. You've got to be really bad to be considered ungodly in most of those systems. But they'd never say that God justifies the ungodly. As a matter of fact, when um, Joseph Smith came across this in the Bible, he was so disgusted that he blatantly changed it from God justifies the ungodly to God does not justify the ungodly the ungodly. And if we had to surmise why he changed it at the end of the day, I think he wanted to add works in there. He wanted to have something to boast about. That's why all other religious systems in some way appeal to the human heart because it feeds our pride. It feeds our pride. But really, the truth that God justifies the ungodly is the greatest news in the world because then everyone can be included. Everyone is qualified to be saved in Christ because Paul has already made it abundantly clear everyone is ungodly. There's no one who's godly. There's no one who is righteous. So because you're ungodly, you fit the description of one who can be saved. As devastating as this is to our pride and our desire to have something to boast about, this is really actually good news. So yet again, we see how Paul takes away all grounds for boasting. We not only have no works with which to commend ourselves before God, our works are actually an offense to God because we ourselves are ungodly. And it is while we are in this state that God justifies us. He justifies us while we are yet sinners. He came to save the lost, the sick, not the found. Not those who thought that they were righteous in their own eyes. Not those who are healthy, but the sinners and the ungodly. Which leads us to Paul's final point. All boasting is excluded because our sins are covered. All boasting is excluded because our sins are covered. Now, Paul does something really interesting here in verses 6 through 8. I want to see if you can catch it. It really um, interests me. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you see what Paul did there between verse 6 and verse 7? In verse 6, Paul is talking about imputation. That is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he says, that's exactly what David is talking about in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. See, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Paul seems to be equating imputation, the righteousness of Christ reckoned to us, with non-imputation. That is, our sins not being counted against us, but rather reckoned to Christ on the cross, where he experienced the fullness of the wrath of God and was punished in our place. Experienced the punish that we should have experienced. So he's talking about them as if they're one. How can he do that? How can he slip so freely and naturally between the two? Because justification is not just one or the other. It's not just imputation or non-imputation. It's both. Non-imputation is one side of the coin. Imputation is the other side of the coin. Justification itself is the coin. You can't be justified by just having the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You can't be justified by just not having your sins reckoned to you or brought against your account. You have to have both. The two together justify us. And they're provided freely by God in the work of Christ. So that's why Paul can speak of the two and flip back and forth in between the two of them. Paul then goes on to describe to us the blessed man. The bl word blessed in Greek essentially means happy. Paul reveals to us in these passages, as David does in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, who the happy man is. And he says the happy man in summation, isn't the man who boasts in his works. He boasts in Christ's works. The happy man does not boast in his works. He boasts in his Lord who saves him through faith. The happy man doesn't boast in his godliness. He boasts that though he is ungodly, he is justified by a righteousness outside of him. Christ's righteousness. The happy man doesn't boast in his works. He boasts in the fact that his sins are not reckoned against him because they have been reckoned against Christ on the cross. Because they have been paid for in full on the cross by Christ. God says this morning, that's all you need to be happy. And guess what? He has provided it all for you. You do not add a thing. I do not add a thing to justification. You don't add a thing to the gospel. It's all been accomplished outside of us in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. It's all been accomplished. And it's been applied to us through faith. As a channel, faith isn't a work. It's all been done for us. All we have is but to receive it. And since we add nothing to it, guess what? We have nothing to boast about. 
And all of us know ourselves well enough to know that at the end of the day, we're disappointing. We are. We're sinful. All the good that is given to us by God in the gospel has been accomplished by him outside of us. And we just receive it. So that leaves us with nothing to boast in. Boasting in ourselves, boasting in what we do, seems like it'd make us happy. And we believe the lie that it will. We believe the lie that boasting in ourselves will make us happy. But the truth is, as Paul reveals here, and as David says to us, the blessed man is the one who knows he can contribute absolutely nothing and has nothing to boast in. Instead, he makes his boast in the one who has accomplished his salvation for him. He boasts in the Lord. And that's why Paul can say in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ through which I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. Let us boast in the Lord together, brothers and sisters. Let us make the Lord our boast, the boast of our tongue all the days of our life. The blessed man who's given all these things apart from works, through faith, though he's ungodly in and of himself, whose sins are not counted against him, that's the happy man. That is the happy man. Let us boast in nothing but the cross. I want to finish by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, which Booney already read for us this morning, but I just love it, and I want to read it again. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, you and me, in the world, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, us, sovereign grace, in the world, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, you and me, brother and sister, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the truth of the gospel. We are humbled over the fact that as much as we want to, in our prideful flesh, seeking after a desire to have something to boast about, we contribute absolutely nothing. We can add nothing to it. It is not by our works 
because before you, our works are as filthy rags. It's only by faith, through faith, the means, the channel of faith, that we are saved. And all that is Christ's through that channel is then made ours, reckoned to be ours, counted to be ours. And we thank you that you justify the ungodly. That's all of us here this morning. Our only hope in approaching you, in approaching the table, is to know that you justify the ungodly based upon the perfect life and the satisfying death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that you do not reckon our sins against us. Though we daily add to the list, though hourly it grows, though even this church service cannot pass without us adding to the list, you do not count it against us. For you took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And you do not count our sins against us. Father, you have accomplished this great redemption all on our behalf. We had nothing to it. And we rejoice in that. Pray that you would teach our hearts and our minds to rejoice and know and love this gospel. And that it would have an impact on our day-to-day lives. And that we would abandon any hope of finding something to boast about in ourselves. But rather that we would boast in you. That we would find our joy and our delight in boasting in you, our treasure. We ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.